So I, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a fair warning from the get-go this morning as we uh, are getting ready to jump into our text. We're talking about suffering this morning. So if that's cool with you guys, we'll, we'll just kind of go into that. One of, the, uh, one of the reasons that I knew that Renee was the woman for me is some of you guys know about my 50% functional pinky that, that I have here. That It closes, but I can't open it, so it looks, looks a little funky. I can't force it open or anything. It was from a basketball injury, and I'll, I'll never forget that a guy drove me to the hospital to get my pinky fixed. It was a compound dislocation, so the bone was sticking. I've got a scar and stuff. If you, if you like that kind of stuff, I, I can show you. It's good times. I'll, I'll save you some of the details. It hurt. I'll, I'll just kind of let you know, know that when your bone comes out of your skin, it hurts. Uh, and, and so I had a guy take me to the emergency room, and my, my girlfriend at the time, Renee, she came as well. And we were back there in the emergency room, and they were putting my pinky back together pretty poorly, uh, I guess, since, since it doesn't work anymore. But uh, Renee stood there, and she watched the whole time. Like, she was there the whole time with me. I don't think she held my hand. I don't remember that because they were putting it back together. Um, but, uh, but it was pretty good until, until the morphine, right? That, and that helped things even more. But she was there. She, she stood there by me in my time of pain and suffering and, and need in, the, in that moment. Um, I, since then, I have reciprocated. I stood in the room as she gave birth to our three children. So I feel like that's kind of evened out. Um, only, had to, only, only had to sit down for one of them. And uh, so I, I feel like things have, have kind of worked out. But one of the things that, that we all know is that when we find ourselves in a, in a position of pain, suffering, for whatever reason that is happening, uh, that it makes it bearable for us to go through those things knowing when we, that we are not alone. Like, we know that life is better together when we have friends. We, we know it's better when we have people who are working together toward a common goal. Like, those, those things are great. It's always good to have people to celebrate with, and we know there's good times when we get together and we have a party, those kinds of things. Life is, is we're celebrating in, in those moments, and we do that together, and we know it's always, always great. But we don't always treat it the same way when we're in the midst of pain and suffering. A lot of us choose to go through those times uh, alone. And yet, enduring suffering together and on behalf of one another is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to friendship, especially biblical friendship and the example that we see through Scripture. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul writes that we should carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So, you know, sometimes we talk about, well, what's God's will for my life? What, what should I do? How do I follow Jesus? We'll carry one another's burdens, suffer with each other in, in those moments. I mean, later on, Paul says each should carry his own load, but we should carry his own, each other's burdens. So the burdens are the things that we, I mean, we just can't handle on our own. The things that we desperately need one another for. And God is there. He's there to provide for us in those moments. But he's created us in such a way that we're, we're there to carry those things along in those times of pain and suffering and great need. Those burdens sometimes we're supposed to be there on behalf of each other. And the reason we're able to do this is because God provides what we need. We don't have to, we talked about this in the, in, the first, in the first sermon, we talked about the contrast between Aristotle and Paul and how we think about friendship, how our culture thinks about friendship. And Aristotle is like, well, the, the two of us, we've got to have, uh, you know, we, we've got to get what we want out of each other, and that's, that's what make thing, th- makes things worse. But Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, the church in Philippians, he talks about relationship, he talks about unity and how we're meant to be there for each other. He says, 
I mean, the reason we're able to be there for each other and enjoy one another's company is because we, we get everything that we need from God. And so I don't, have to, I don't have to rely on somebody else for that because God has already sufficiently, richly provided those things for our need. And so it's within that context that we're able to provide for one another and carry one another's burdens in those moments of suffering in our lives. Of course, our, our text, our foundation for the sermon series has been Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So hopefully you've read through that a couple times and become familiar with that. It's our ancient wisdom for how we move through times of suffering together. And verse 11 is the one that calls this out for us. In verse 11, uh, Solomon writes, Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? I usually watch Band of Brothers. Some of you are familiar with that, World War II, um, in, in the winter. And I, I usually watch it in the winter because there's a two-episode arc about the Battle of Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge. And Bastogne is, is one of the significant moments where I think the average temperature during that time was 20 degrees Fahrenheit. That was the average. So it got down as low as uh, minus 20, uh, Christmas Eve night when they, when they were there. They were there over Christmas. Um, just, just, the, just the astonishing stuff. Uh, there are people who were actually there who have watched Band of Brothers, and they said this is pretty, as, as far as things you're going to watch, this is pretty spot on, you know, close to, to how, how it was. And, and some of you know, know these details, but they didn't have any winter gear. So they were very, um, very much did not have what they need to be in the condition, uh, conditions that they were in. And so these guys, these soldiers had to dig foxholes. They had to huddle together for warmth. And so when I read this, when I read this verse, you know, how can, how can one keep warm alone? I think about those moments where it's negative 20 and the only way that you're going to survive. And this is not... Not to say the danger you're facing because you actually have another army who's on the other side of the woods who's trying to kill you. But the only way you can survive is by huddling together and, and being there for one another to keep, keep each other warm in those times of suffering. Um, all of the basics that a soldier would need in those moments were stripped away from them. Everything that they would need to be able to succeed, the only reason some of those guys who did survive and why they were able to be successful further on down the road past that is because they stuck together in those moments. They suffered together instead of individually and separately. And of course, the reason that they built that foundation, you, you could say, I, like I get the, the whole thing, well, were they were in the army, they were forced to, to do this and those kinds of things. No, most of those people joined up them, themselves and, um, and, and they were serving together and it's the way that they built relationships, they worked together, they recognized they were better together that they were able to provide mutual support for each other when they were in the, these moments of suffering. Their friendships and shared value are what set them up for being there for one another when they desperately needed it for survival. And there's a major contrast here with our cultural obsession, I would say, with individualism. The more that most people think they can establish the, their independence, the happier um, most people seem to think that they are. I mean, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of a thing for us. We, we're Americans. We, we like independence, right? I mean, that, that's a thing. We're celebrating Memorial Day weekend because we know of men and women who have lost their lives in service to our country for, toward that end. And so that's a big thing for us, independence and freedom. But it doesn't actually always lead to more happiness when it comes to individualism. Um, a lot of times, actually, our pursuit of independence and placing our happiness in, in that bucket leads more to codependency. Because more than anything, uh, instead of saying together we have a greater capacity of, for warmth, most people 
based on their moral philosophy and ethics and getting that from our culture, most people think, hey, you have warmth, I need that, give, give, give that to me. It's, maybe it seems a little nuanced, but that, that's a significant difference in how we approach things. That's why no one is satisfied with tolerance anymore, and that's why we can't handle it if we don't hear somebody parrot our own opinion back to, back to us. Instead of a healthy discussion of differences, for example, people result in name-calling, screaming, demonizing the other, and curating confirmation bias, relationships, and information sources. I mean, that, that's kind of where our idea of individualism and independence has, has, has led us. But in reality, none of us are actually independent. I mean, some of us might survive for a while totally on our own. I mean, I don't know, you can go out in the woods, let, let's see, like report back to us in a few months and see, see how it goes. We just have a choice between using others for our own benefit, the codependency side of things, my happiness is contingent on what I can get others to do for me, or we can choose mutuality that enjoys the benefit we've already received in sufficient measure from God. At least that's how we're supposed to think of things as disciples of Jesus. Our biblical definition of friendship is choosing to show someone how valuable they are by sacrificing and care for, caring for them the way that Jesus does. And so when it comes to scripture and when it comes to following Jesus and how we think about our relationships, our community, and our friendships, there's, there's a better way forward in how we think about ourselves. Rather than individualism and independence, the relational need we have for one another is represented in interdependence. And that, that's, that's kind of a shift in thinking that all of us need to be reminded of, is that rather than being independent, we need interdependence. Interdependence is a covenantal approach in which there's equal shared responsibility and partnership that we work toward and desire for one another. And those are the kind of relationships that God has created for us to enjoy um, and, and the type of relationships that, that we need in order to move through life, in the good times and in the bad. In interdependence, we become collaborators together. That even if we live on completely opposite sides of, of, the, of the globe, we can, we can look at somebody else who is a disciple of Jesus and we can recognize that God is working in and through us in a way that is leading both of us toward his will. Even if there's no direct connection that we know of, that there's something greater underlying that, that God is moving in and, in and through us to accomplish along with his will. It's great to have friends when things are great, especially... Uh, especially when we have moments, moments to celebrate. That's, that's an amazing thing. But it's even better to have people who surround us that are friends who are there when things are terrible. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, we read, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. And the problem, at least that, that I've observed, is that when we don't when we don't spend time on friendship, when we, when we participate in the loneliness epidemic that our culture has created for us, um, we, we don't have people who surround us when times aren't great. We don't have people who are there for us when we go through times of suffering. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because we don't participate in the type of friendship that God has de designed for us. There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 16, we're going to start reading verse 25. There's a little bit of backstory. Paul and Silas, who are two friends who are traveling and ministering together, are in the town of Philippi. Philippi is where the church that Paul writes to, the letter of Philippians, this is where later Paul is going to write this, this letter that talks about examples of friendship and the fellowship and the affectionate care that we're supposed to have for each other and what that looks like. 
Um, I think there's a reason for why they're able to read Paul's letter and kind of think about examples. Because Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and and they're sharing the gospel. They're meeting with, uh, they actually meet with a group of women who are right outside the city and praying. um, And and the church kind of starts out, out of that. And you can read that in the preceding verses. And they're there. They're going to this, this place of prayer to, to gather with that small, burgeoning con- congregation. But the whole time that they've been there, uh, there are plenty of other people who believe plenty of other things. And there's this servant girl uh, that's been owned by a couple other people who've made a lot of money on her because she's a fortune teller. And she keeps following after Paul and Silas. And she keeps saying, hey, these, these, guys, are, these guys are from God. They serve the Most High. You should, you should listen to them. Uh, or something, something like that. And, and Paul finally just gets annoyed because he's just following along with them and just, just saying this. And he turns around and he says to the, to the, uh, to the evil spirit who, uh, who is indwelling her, and he says, come, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. So it happens. The people that own her are ticked because their bread and butter is gone. So the money that they've been making off of the servant girl is, is no longer... And so they grab Paul and Silas, they have them severely flogged, they have them beaten with rods, they have them thrown in jail, um, and tell the jailer, hey, basically on pain of death, you make sure you guard these these guys carefully, okay? So that's what's happening. So in verse 25, this this being the context, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. As you do after you're severely flogged and beaten and thrown into into jail and shackled together, right? I mean, that's, that's just what else are you going to do, right? So might as, pray, well, might as well pray and sing hymns. Other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose, the jailer woke up and we saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Um, this, this is a really weird story. This is not, you know, some, again, sometimes we read through scripture, read the stories, are kind of, kind of familiar with it. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. Okay, that's fine. Let's, let's move on. This is, all, all of the things that happen here are strange and don't really make sense until we understand what biblical friendship actually looks like and how we even come to this place. I'm just going to let you know, my first reaction to be, being severely beaten and flogged is not going to be, you know what we should do? We should pray and sing Kumbaya. You know, that, like that, that's just not, the, that's not my gut reaction in, in those moments. And yet, that's what Paul and Silas did in this. And there's a reason for that. It's because they had mutual support from one another in this. And it was a decision they made long before they found their, themselves in this, in this situation. Now, the way the servant girl was used by her owners, to me... That is a great representation of how the world uses relationships for personal gain and benefit. Her owners didn't care at all what happened to her. They were just mad because their ticket was no longer there. I mean, their, their, their financial you know, um, well-being was undercut now that this person who had issues had been healed. 
by Paul and Silas. And they didn't care about the merits of their, their message at all. They didn't care about whether or not it makes sense, you know, what they were doing and, and the fact that they were able to heal this person that, that maybe they should pay attention to what's going on. All they cared about was now their personal gain was gone. They're blinded by greed and power. And even as, as you keep reading and, and, you, and you think about the situation that Paul and Silas are, are in, I mean, yeah, the singing and the praying thing is kind of, this seems kind of maybe weird, but their reaction to being set free, that was kind of weird too, because it wasn't like their reaction to the earthquake happening, the jail doors breaking for, open, the chains breaking and falling through the ground. They weren't like, oh, God set us free, that's great, let's go. That, that, was, that was not how they approached that. In, f- in fact, their being set free took into the, the account the suffering of somebody else in that moment. Their concern was for the jailer at that time, not that, oh, God, God's open to the prison doors, like we can escape and get out. Their concern was, oh, wait, this jailer's about to commit suicide because he's failed in his job to, to, to guard us and keep us here as prisoners. And so Paul and Silas' first concern in that moment was for the well-being of the man who was responsible for ensuring that they endured injustice and suffering. And so instead of taking the opportunity to pass this off and on to the jailer, they stop. They stick around to ensure his well-being. Imagine um, if, if they hadn't. If they hadn't had this perspective that the reason that they didn't feel like they had to run out of the jail is because they already knew that they had been set free. It wasn't the chains that bound them together. It wasn't the jail doors that kept them captive. It was the sin that Jesus had already dealt with on the cross. And so their perspective in that moment, their ability to pray and praise together was there because their friendship was built on something that was already much stronger than the chains in the jail that that held them. And so that's why they were able to look and have a completely different perspective here and say, yeah, I mean, we might be suffering in this moment. So it's not that, it's not that their suffering wasn't real in, in that time, but they thought, I mean, what happens if this jailer kills himself as a result and he doesn't experience the freedom that Christ brings in his life and how that impacts his household down the road? I mean, think about the ripple effect and cycle of suffering that continues without somebody stepping out of that and providing friendship in that moment. I mean, think about that jailer's family. Think about the people who were under him. Think about his kids. Think about his wife, all, the, all those situations, and, and the ripple effect of pain and suffering that continues when somebody, um, when somebody continues the hurt in those, in those moments. There are plenty of people in our lives that are walking around freely, but they're in chains. They're alone in their own prison of pain and suffering. Sometimes it's of their own making. Sometimes it's just because the world is broken by sin. Maybe, maybe that person is you. And, and maybe you've come to a place or see people in a place where you're just kind of desperate about, what, what do I need to move through and get past this place in my life? Well, people who have the hope of full sufficiency in the power of God's love, grace, and mercy, um, when, when we're full of hope to see past our own experience of a fallen and broken world and we're able to be there for others, like that, that's what people need. People need friends who are willing to see past their own suffering, see the sufficiency of God's hope in their life, and be able to share and endure in that pain and suffering with, with other people. You know, there's two really easy ways that, that we can do this very practically in our lives. 
Um, there, there are moments that are just very obvious, and some, some, are, some are not so obvious, I, I get it. But there are two really obvious ways um, that we can be there for people in our lives that, um, quite frankly, are, are kind of fading from, from our culture. One is showing up to funerals. Um, a, buddy of mine, a buddy of mine and I went to a funeral a couple, couple years ago, and this was for the wife of um, the uh, college president that we had where, where, we went to, where we went to school together. And uh, we were there, and he came up to us kind of at, during the visitation before a lot of people had gotten there. And he just told us, he said, hey, I just want to appreciate I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that you guys made the trip to come down here for this because it's something that I've noticed is happening less and less. So he and a friend of his has made it kind of a commitment in their lives to, to go and, and, and do that in those moments. And it's not something I've necessarily observed. Um, sometimes, you know, I naturally, um, unfortunately, have opportunities to participate in, in funerals. And um, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to be there and support the family in those moments. Um, but man, we, we got to be the people, we got to be the people who are showing up in those moments as best, as best, as best we can. Um, because we're the people who know the hope that we ultimately have through Christ. Um, and those are the moments, those, those moments of transformation and crisis um, those are the most important moments for us to show up and help people carry, carry their burdens. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, you know, Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It's, it's easy to celebrate the good times, but it's better for us to be there in the hard times. Uh, this, the second thing is, is hospital visits. Hospital visits are kind of interesting things uh, to me because there's been a big shift over the last 20 years. It used to be. If the pastor didn't come visit you in the hospital, um, oh, you left the church. I mean, that was like cardinal sin number one. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what else. I'll never forget, a buddy, uh, buddy of mine and I worked together at the same church. We went and visited a gentleman in the hospital. And after he got out, he started complaining because no one came and visited him in the hospital from the church. And my buddy and I were kind of looking at each other as, what? I mean, we, we came and, and visited you. But it wasn't the preacher. So if you're not the preacher, you don't count, I guess, is, is, is what was communicated there. And uh, the preacher wasn't there visiting him because he was visiting with somebody who was much worse off. You know, so it's just one of those things that's really interesting. Now, over the last 20 years, what, what I've noticed, um, and, and if I can, I, I'd love to be able to pray with people or come, come visit with people. But one of the shifts I've noticed over the last 20 years is you just don't know about it until after it's happened. I just don't find out about it. And I, I don't know if, um, I guess, maybe... You know, posting on Facebook doesn't count. Like, that doesn't count as telling people, right? So I, I don't know. So I just don't know about it nearly as much. And there's so many times where I think or, or, or I find out so much longer afterwards that, that that has happened or those things have happened or somebody's passed away or, or you know, oh, I was in the hospital several weeks ago for, for this thing. And there, there's just been this shift of just communicating with people or being vulnerable enough with people to let them know, hey, this is what's going on in my life. And it would be great for somebody to be there for me. It doesn't matter what that is. It doesn't have to be a funeral. It doesn't have to be a hospital visit. It could be uh, you're struggling emotionally or mentally. Uh, things aren't going well, well at work. Whatever those things are, we are not designed to go through those things alone. 
We are designed to be the type of people who develop friendships with which we can be vulnerable enough to share those moments with one another so that we can be there for one another. And the reason that we can um, be there is because our, I, you know, sometimes people will say things like, well, I just don't want to bother anybody. Or, I, I, know, I know people are busy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that, that is not the way we're called to interact with each other or present to each other in our, in our lives. Um, those are the precise moments in which everything else kind of drops off. And, and those are the moments in, in which, which we show up. And so we, we need to be the type of people who are going to be vulnerable with each other to share in those moments. And, and we need to be the type of people that other people can be vulnerable with for those moments. Because we're meant to be there for one another. You know, Paul and Silas go into this situation in Acts chapter 16. Their eyes are, are wide open to the fact that things are not always going to go the way that they want them to when they go into ministry. Um, we tend to think of Paul, Apostle, the Apostle Paul is kind of this rugged individual who writes these letters to all these church, churches. He's a very prolific writer. He's prolific as a missionary. He goes and shares Jesus. I mean, just, just a real go-getter. Um, Paul co-writes almost all his letters Paul always has somebody there working with him. The whole reason that he and Silas get together is because his other coworker Barnabas, they had a disagreement about this other kid who, who uh, didn't show up when he was needed. And so Paul was looking for somebody who would show some strength in times of trouble, and that's how he and, and Silas got together in the first place. And this is why they set the expectation that they would need one another's mutual support, uh, whether rejoicing when it was time or mourning when it was time. So this is why when they find themselves in jail, they find themselves there together and able, are able to strengthen one another as a result. Instead of suffering alone, they find themselves worshiping together, praying and singing with one another. It's called the attention of the other prisoners uh, because they modeled a conspicuous joy despite their circumstances of suffering. And it caught the attention of the jailer as well. As well. And so there's even further implications for how we suffer together with one another. It's not just only for our mutual benefit, but it shows Jesus to other people when we don't suffer in silence and, and, and we don't suffer alone. You know, Paul and Silas were able to pray and praise together because they suffered together. They were able to draw off of that mutual support that God had given them sufficiently as individuals to share with one another. You know, the, the victim mentality is, is really, um, we're not very resilient people these days in our culture anymore. Um, the victim mentality is a popular approach these days. You know, we kind of abdicate responsibility. Oh, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. You know, it's my circumstances or it's this other people, you know, those kinds of things. And yet Paul and Silas, their, their approach in this moment, I'm totally unfair. They should not have had this experience at all. It was completely unjust. Um, there's some things that happen after this chapter in which they kind of identify that. Um, but Paul and Silas' mutual support of one another, they were able to find joy together in the midst of this situation because they relied on the strength of one another's hope and faith that God had already freed them through Christ. We're better together and we work toward friendship because it's the way God created us to live in community and because it enables us to suffer well together. And this is one of the distinctive ways of life for the disciples of Jesus, for a disciple of Jesus, that we suffer with and on behalf of one another. The jailer's family, their, their entire eternal trajectory was changed precisely because of the way Paul and Silas suffer together. The jailer saw them, their reaction, the fact that they cared about him 
more than they cared about their own physical freedom because they were already spiritually free. And his entire household believed and was baptized and was filled with joy because of the joy Paul and Silas had held on to and expressed. It was the jailer who had actually been the one in the entire story, the entire time, it was the jailer who was the one who needed freeing, not Paul and Silas. And God used the goodness of how Paul and Silas suffered together to bring this about. They become collaborators with the jailer in sharing the gospel in a way that they didn't expect and couldn't foresee, all because they trusted God together instead of despairing apart. The friends that reflect God's friendship with us the most are the ones that we endure suffering with. And, and it's up to us to make the choice to, to be vulnerable enough to develop those types of friendship in our lives. Not only do they provide the warmth we need from the sharp cold of loneliness when we're exposed to the brokenness of the world, they provide the focus and perspective we need to remain centered on the hope we have and the best that's yet to come from God. Jesus endured suffering on the cross on our behalf so that we would no longer be separated from the warmth of God's love for us. I've got a picture of this and how it should look for us as disciples and for the church that I want to share. Um, This comes from a retired Navy SEAL who wrote an article a couple years ago uh, in a newspaper, an opinion piece, and he just shared his experience from Hell Week. So as a Navy SEAL, there's Hell Week kind of at the end of training. Some of you probably know more details about this than I do. Um, It's a six-day, no sleep, you know, we're going to weed you out. Uh, week of mind and body, you know, we, you're, you're not going to become a Navy SEAL. I mean, it's just, just part of the nature um, of, uh, of the task that they, tasks that they are given. And one of the, the, the at the very end of Hell Week, um, they're taken out to a place called the Mud Flats, and basically you're super cold, you're sleep deprived, um, you're just worn out at this point. And the instructors told them to go crawl out into the mud, and they go out there um, and they're buried in mud up to their necks. So it's just their, their heads, and they're, they're, freezing, they're freezing cold. Um, and they tell them, out of the 55 uh, trainees that, that are out there in the, in the mud together, they tell them, hey, if only five of you quit and go home, everybody else can get out. Uh, they got about eight hours left at this point before the sun comes up. Keep in mind, six days, no sleep. So there's some trainees that start crawling to the edge. They're, done, they're like, all right, we'll be the five. And, um, and out of nowhere, um, a voice starts singing. I don't know what the song was. It was not in tune, as, as uh, this former Navy SEAL uh, remembers it. But just starts start singing. And it's at that moment that all the trainees make it through together. They got eight hours to go before the sun comes up, before they're done with, with their training. But that one voice started singing. And then all the other voices that joined in enabled all of those trainees to make it through together. There's, um, there's something to be said about having someone who's willing to go first, who's willing to be vulnerable, even out of tune, and remind each and every one of us of the perspective that we have when we're together and we're supporting each other. And, and, and this, is, this is different, right? I mean, this is, this is Navy SEAL training. And the implications of this and of the, of the real spiritual battles that, that we go through are, are very different. Um, you know, there, there's an article, a friend just sent me this this past week where um, a soldier actually died during this training. 
uh, recently, and they're having to completely rehaul how, how they're going to, and reset the parameters because uh, they weren't uh, concerned with safety during the training like they, like they should have. Um, and so some of those things are going shift, to shift and change. Um, in the bro world broken by sin, no, nobody's, uh, no, nobody's um, looking, looking out and controlling the parameters of the things that we might, we might come up against. Um, but, but God is controlling all of those parameters. He, he's the one who's ultimately in control of what ultimately happens. And it's when we go through those things together that we're able to strengthen each other to keep their perspective that with God there's always something better on the other side. Hope, um, hope is always worth holding on to. Because he's already set us free. And, and ultimately, those are the types of friendships that we're supposed to have with each other. It, it just takes somebody who's willing to go first. Even, even if it's not perfect, even if you don't have the perfect words to say, uh, sometimes it's just to, just, to, just to be there. And so may, may we be the friends who show up. May we be the friends who, uh, who pray together. Um, and praise together to remind us of what God has already done and what he will do. When we do that together, we'll remember that our chains are already broken, um, and we'll be free to show us uh, the one who befriends us so that we might be free. We celebrate this every week at Velocity by taking communion together. So we've got a few different tables around, around the room, and we've got uh, two cups stacked together, one with bread and one with juice, that reminds us the fact that um, Jesus suffers on our behalf, he endures suffering on our behalf so that we, um, we might be set free from the chains and uh, the jail that, that binds us. Um, so let's, let's celebrate that time together as we pray. God, we thank you for, for Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that he provides, and we thank you for the fr friendship that he models for us so that we might be reminded uh, constantly of the hope and the joy that we have, the contentment we have, because uh, you provide all of those things to us. God, we praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.